Philippians chapter 4, I want to read just verses 4 through 7. Philippians chapter 4, 4 through 7. Having found that, please pray with me. Father in heaven, now we come to this which is your word, and I pray that you would enable us to to hear it, to understand it, to pay attention to it. Uh, But Father, that it would not just be comprehended by us, but Father, that this word would apprehend us, grab a hold of us, seize us, take us captive, and Father, that it would uh, cause us then uh, to live, uh, to live in a way that is pleasing to you, that testifies to the truth uh, of the gospel of Christ. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Very familiar passage. As you might suspect, I can't get to all of that. Uh, this Sunday, so I just want to—I wanted to read that because we'll catch it next week, the end. But I want to this week just think about verses four and five. Frankly, mostly verse five, but verse four doesn't surprise us. Uh, uh, Paul begins by saying, "Rejoice!" That again, it shouldn't surprise us because um, uh, he's been saying, "Rejoice!" He's been saying, "Have joy!" He's been saying, "Live with joy!" He's been saying that Christian life is a life of joy all throughout this this letter, and so it, it isn't surprising. Uh, that he says rejoice, except that it's surprising he says it again, that, that he, he wouldn't think that we had gotten it uh, yet. So again, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say uh, rejoice. And I think he does that uh, for a couple of reasons, and I think partially we'll see how it ties then in, I think, with verse 5. First, that a Christian who doesn't rejoice gives evidence of the fact that he or she doesn't quite get it yet. Because rejoicing in all things, all the time, always, shows that you understand the gospel, that you get it. Now, uh, please understand, uh, it doesn't mean we live in, with a lack of reality. Christians live with their eyes completely open to see all the tragedy, all the pain, and we experience that even in the context of our own lives. But that doesn't dull this sense of joy, this sense of rejoicing. And so when Paul makes a command to rejoice, obviously he understands, most certainly since he's in prison while he's writing this, most certainly while he's writing it to a group of Christians who themselves are suffering, as he says, in the same way that he's suffering, meaning that they're experiencing a measure of persecution, even perhaps to the point of themselves, some being in prison, maybe even some martyred for their faith. We don't know, but he's writing to them. So when he commands them to rejoice, we know that he's not insensitive. We know that he's not an idiot. And so he must have something in mind here. He must realize that they can continue to have within them a spirit of, a sense of, a feeling of even, joy. Even in the midst of those circumstances, meaning rejoicing joy, doesn't depend on the circumstances in which we live. That's why he doesn't say rejoice in yourselves or rejoice in this present circumstance, but rather he says rejoice in the Lord. Think upon him, look to him, and that should bring to you a sense of joy. And if it doesn't, are you really getting it? Do you really get and understand what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. Do you really understand 
that you were completely lost and estranged from God. And God came to you in Christ Jesus to reattach you to the Father, to join you together to, with Him, to cause you to be accepted, to be received by God, to be adopted into His family. Do you understand that? Do you understand, therefore, that you live, regardless of the circumstance that you're in, you live in the security of that? There's a great expression in Romans chapter 8, great question that Paul asks. He simply asks this, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now think about that. Regardless of the circumstance that you're facing, regardless of the enemy that you're seeing, whether it's within or without, regardless of the difficulty that you're having, whether it's illness or the economy or relationships or whatever it is, as a believer in Christ, when you think upon the gospel, you think upon this very question, if God is for me, who can be against me? Can anything undermine me? And the answer, of course, to that question is no. Not if God is for us, who can be against us. When I was a little kid, I uh, played on a Little League baseball team, the Lions, and uh, we weren't very good, but we had a pitcher. His name was Milroy Stevenson, and he was great. Nobody could hit him. He hit a few, but that was Little League, but nobody could hit him. And there's this sense when he was pitching, almost in my mind, being a little biblical kid, I would think, Milroy Stevenson is for us. <laughs> who can be against us? Who can, who can thwart us? Really? Of course, that's silly in comparison with the things that we face, but the truth of the matter is, if God, that's the gospel, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now the question, of course, therefore, is he for us? And the answer that Paul gives is, he, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That's the proof. It's the cross. It's the cross of Christ, that is, the gospel is the cross of Christ that gives us the confidence to know that God is for us because he gave his son for us. And so he is, in fact, for us. And if he would give his son that which is of the greatest value to him, the greatest value of all creation, over all creation, the very son of God, then, of course, He'll give us all things. Is he for us? Yes. That's the gospel. That, you see, ringing in our minds should be, ringing in our minds, in every circumstance should bring to us a measure of joy. Thus, the apostle can say, rejoice in the Lord. Now, we know that there is a joy that we have, feel, by faith, and there is a joy that comes to us when we see God having had Worked, for instance, Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is one of those great psalms of joy, but it's a psalm of joy in the context of faith. We begin in verse 1. The psalmist writes, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And so there's the psalmist situation. He's looking to God to be his, 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 his fortress, his refuge, a place to go in time of trouble. Okay? And he realizes that he has received from God great things, and yet still there are great things to come. Notice in verse, uh, verse 6, he says, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. They may get this sense that the lines in his present day have fallen nicely for him, and perhaps they have, but he's still thinking of what's to come. He's thinking of the great promised inheritance 
that God has for him. So even though he needs God now to be his refuge to run, because he's in times of trouble, he's thinking ahead. And he's placing before him this understanding that God has done great things for me and will be blessing me with great things. And so he says this in verse 8. He says, I have set the Lord always before me because he he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. He's saying, even in the midst of this time when I need to run to God for refuge and help, to be my defender, to be my helper, what I do is I put God, I put the Lord between me and my trouble. So I'm seeing my trouble through the Lord, not trying to find the Lord through my trouble. And so I set the Lord always before me. And so by faith then, he's able to say in verse 11, you make known to me the path of life in your presence, when the Lord is near, in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand, are pleasures forever. And so even though he's experiencing a measure of trouble, he knows what's to come, and he knows that the Lord is with him. He knows that if God is for him, who can be against him? Therefore, he knows by faith that there is joy in the very presence of the Lord. Joy by faith. You, you know that. If you're a Christian, you understand that. If you're a Christian, you understand there are times you're going through and you may not be ready to smile and you might not be ready to laugh and you might be, not be filled with this great sense of, of frivolity, but there's still this thing in you, however that feels, that acknowledges the fact that God is for you, that God hasn't abandoned you, and God has a great inheritance for you, and even at that moment in time, He is with you. In fact, you know, because you're a believer in Christ, that all things will, in fact, work together for good. Now, you realize everybody believes that. But only Christians can believe it with any assurance. I mean, if you go anywhere, people think, they tell you about their lives, and if something bad is happening, they think, well, it'll probably work out for my good. But I always think, what good did it work out for the victims of the Holocaust? What good does it work out for people who die? What good does it work out for people who lose their job and never get a job as good as the one that they had before? But see, for Christians, we know the whole context. We know that God is for us. We know all things work together for good for those who love God and are called by Him that are called by Him for His purpose, which is a good purpose, which is to conform us to the image of Christ, and which is therefore then to take us to be with Christ. And so we always know that, and therefore always in any circumstance, in any situation, we have this thing within us by faith saying, yes, God is for me. And that is supposed to spring us with joy within, however that feels. Now, think about this with me. I want to think out loud with you. Just This is a bit of an aside, but it's, I think it's helpful. I think it's important, and that is this. I always get like this, and we're just going to talk for a minute. Do we understand, do you understand, that we need to go to the Bible, to the Scripture, with this question? With this question. And the question is, God, what's supposed to make me happy? Because, you see, we don't know that. We have a skewed view of what is supposed to bring us joy. And what the Scripture says should bring us joy is an awareness of the Gospel and that we believe it and that therefore we belong to God. That should always thrill our souls. You remember 
that there was a time when Jesus sent out some missionary people, some disciples. And even Jesus said that their mission endeavor was very successful. He said, I saw Satan fall out of heaven. And he said, but, but don't rejoice in that. I'm thinking that's cool. <laughs> you know, after I preach, if somebody says, you know, Satan just fell out all over. Cool, I'm happy about that. But he said, no, 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 no. That's not what's really supposed to make you rejoice. What's to make you rejoice is that your name is written in heaven. There's a hymn we sing sometimes, come thy fount, not font, <laughs> come thy fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing your grace. That little expression, tune my heart, means we're out of tune. And what we need, you see, when we come to the scripture is to say, God, what should I desire? What should I take joy in? What should I rejoice in? See, I take joy in, as you do, in cars and nice houses and food and, and fun and, and, and all those uh, position and respect and all those kinds of things. And I suppose there's a measure there of good stuff could come in that and we feel good about that, especially if we give thanks to God. But what we should be thankful for, what, which, what should really move us to joy is knowing that we belong to God through Jesus Christ. If that doesn't, if that's not the spark that thrills you, not saying you're not a Christian because sometimes our spark plugs need to be tuned a little. But I'm saying go to the Lord and say, you know God, it doesn't. I think about it and it's nice. Some days it really thrills my grips, my heart, but other days... So God, work that in me. Tune my heart so that the thought of the cross, the thought of the gospel, the thought of my name being written in heaven, that no matter what else is going on, that fills me with joy. So Paul's saying, listen, rejoice in the Lord always. Why? Because it's an indicator to us that we understand the gospel. But not only that, but it's an indicator as well of our witness to the gospel. See, in our rejoicing, people see we have a hope that is within us. You know, the world continues to ask this question of us. Is my problem, that is their problem, our problem universally, is the human condition, is the human problem the fact that we're estranged from God, that we're separated from Him because of our own rebellion against Him, because of our own sin? That's the question. And then they ask, is it true that the only way to be reattached to God, the only way to be joined with Him, the only way to be accepted by Him is through faith in Christ. Is that really true? That is, can that really satisfy my heart? And you know, if we're walking around complaining and bitter and angry and, and, and miserable all the time, living in the same circumstances they are, they're going to conclude there's nothing to this Christianity. Because we're just as miserable as they are. But you see, our rejoicing is a witness to the sufficiency of Christ, to how he satisfies our very lives. So then that takes us into verse 5, you see, because there's something now that needs to be made known to everyone. We rejoice, that should be to God, and people should see that and say, yeah, that's a witness to the truth of the gospel, that's a witness to how Christ satisfies 
But now he says, I want your reasonableness. I have it in my version. Some of you will have, let your moderation. Some of you will have, let your gentleness. Some of you will have, let your forbearing spirit. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. He's saying, I want people to see something. And it is your reasonableness, your gentleness. You see, if you're really a believer in Christ, if you're one who rejoices in the Lord, then that should have an effect on, on your relationships with each other. This little word that I just went through a number of different uh, definitions is a difficult one to translate. Obviously, every version, every English version of the Bible has a little different word in there because the translators are trying to capture something and it's difficult to capture in one word. But when they use the word reasonableness, there's a great scene. I can't look at my wife when I use this illustration because she knows I shouldn't. But there's a great scene in Godfather 1. Um, and it's Don Corleone is, is uh, I won't ask for a show of hands if everybody's seen this movie but everybody's seen this movie but uh, he's sitting in this room with the other mafia leaders right and he stands up and you go uh oh he's going to kill them all but he says those famous words I'm a reasonable man and everybody goes because you get this sense He's going to be reasonable here as opposed to unreasonable. That he's going to take the whole situation in mind so he's probably not going to kill everybody. Well, Michael does at the end of the movie, but that's another thing. He's unreasonable at that point. But he's going to be reasonable. You know, if you have to go, uh, if, 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 if you have a professor and you have a late paper to turn in, you're hoping he's going to be reasonable. And when a man is coming home late for dinner, he's hoping against hope. His wife is going to be reasonable, right? And what that means is, I hope this person takes into account all the mitigating circumstances, everything here. So they'll be reasonable and thus they'll treat me more gently, more forgivingly, more graciously, more fair-mindedly than that. And so that's the context of this word. That's what it's after. Saying, I want a person, we should be people who understand the whole situation and act accordingly. Because you see, we have a sense of understanding. We know what it's like to be a human being. We know the difficulties that are involved. And so we're going to treat each other graciously, mercifully. You know, someone who is merciful is an empathetic person by definition. Mercy means there's some sense in which you see the misery that another person is in and experiencing. You see their difficulty and you understand it and it moves you it moves you to do something about it, to treat them in a particular way. In fact, the person that comes to mind when we think of mercy, when we think of this kind of reasonable spirit, is the Lord Jesus himself. Because it's expressed in his own personal humility in the incarnation as he comes gently and kindly to us. For instance, back in Philippians chapter 2, we've, we've read this many, many times as we've worked our way through uh, Philippians. By the way, I'm going to go to 12 minutes after. Um, relax be reasonable okay so all I have to say this is one of those instant application sermons verse 5 chapter 2 Philippians have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, uh, even death on the cross. You see, that was Jesus. And you remember, 
in the, in the incarnation, he humbles himself. Now he could, if he wanted to, justly walk down the streets of Jerusalem and condemn people left and right to hell for their sin against God. He could do that. He had the right to do that. But he was gentle. He was forbearing. He was merciful. In fact, when Isaiah speaks of the character of the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 42, he says this. The prophet writes in verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now the question is, how is he going to do that? Verse 2, He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. That is, Jesus is going to be gentle. You know what a bruised reed is. If you're walking through the field and you see a big tall reed and it has a bruise in it, it's bent over and it's about ready to break. Scripture says Jesus is gentle, so much so that he comes to that reed and he touches it at its most vulnerable point and it doesn't break. It actually becomes stronger. You blow out a candle. You know, just at the very end, right before it's extinguished completely, there's just this little hint of smoke going up. And if you flicked it with your finger, if you blew out it again, it would die cold. It says Jesus is reasonable, gentle, he can blow on it in such a way, not to overblow on it, not to underblow on it, but just enough, it will burst back forth into flame. And you see that spirit makes him to be what the scripture calls him, a merciful and faithful high priest. For instance, in Hebrews in chapter 5, I'm sorry, chapter 4 and verse 14, it says of Jesus, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Then let us with confidence draw near the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's a merciful high priest. Now, in chapter 5 of Hebrews, the author will go on to tell us, how a high priest is chosen. He's chosen from among the people. Why? So he can be merciful. How does it help him be merciful? Because he understands the people. He knows the difficulties of their lives. So in verse 7 of Hebrews 5, it says of Jesus, In his days of flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now when we read that he was, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, it doesn't mean he had been disobedient, but it meant he understood what it meant to be obedient as a human being through times of difficulty. How many of you know it's easy to obey on a good day? But it was times of suffering when things were difficult that he learned what it's like to be an obedient human being. He learned what it's like to confront the sin around him and still obey his father. And it says, and being made perfect. It wasn't that he was imperfect, but all of this suffering and obedience enabled him to be 
become a perfect high priest, one who knew the experience of being a human being. And that, you see, is what causes Jesus to be merciful because he knows us. He knows our condition. That's why when we pray, we don't pray to one who is unsympathetic. We pray to one who is sympathetic. How many times in your life, I know that I do this constantly when I'm going through something, I say, Lord Jesus, you know how I feel. You know what this is like. You know how hard this is. Please help me. And we pray with great confidence because he knows how it is for us, and yet he was able to overcome it. And so we're actually asking someone who knows us and yet is able to overcome that in us. When we talk to ourselves, it's nice because we can empathize with each other because we know the difficulties we go through. But the truth of the matter is, when I'm talking to you, I know you're no better at it than I am. And when you're talking to me, you know I'm not any particularly better at it than you are. But when we talk to the Lord Jesus, we know that as our merciful, perfect merciful high priest, he not only understands, but he's able because he triumphed. And that's our great confidence, you see. He's merciful to us. And so you see, the apostle is saying to to each of us now, I want you to follow after Christ. I want you to be like Christ in this regard. I want you to be humble, and I want you to be gentle, and I want you to be reasonable in your dealings with each other. In fact, as he writes to his son in the faith, Timothy, in 2 Timothy in chapter... I'll tell you what chapter when I get there. It's one or two or three. 2 Timothy, uh, chapter 2, verse... 23, he writes to him like this. He says, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently, enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may escape from being the snare of the devil. Uh, from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. If you think about this situation, there's Timothy. He had been with Paul, so his theology is probably better than everybody's in the church. Paul had chosen him for this task. He'd probably exhibited a measure of maturity and holiness that was exemplary. But he puts Timothy in this situation and he says, Timothy, be reasonable, be moderate, be gentle, have a forbearing spirit. Be patient with people. Well, on the basis of what? On the basis of Timothy, it's not about you. It's not about you winning every argument. It's not about you being shown to be smarter or more holy than everybody else. Timothy, it's about the gospel. That's what it's about. And Timothy, remember, how did you come to repentance? How did you come to faith? Was it something of your own doing? Or, or, Timothy, was it because God came to you and blessed you with a godly grandmother and a godly mother who led you at their very knee to faith in Christ? Isn't that a gift? Isn't that grace? Timothy, how can you lord it over these people? Just be gentle, be kind, bear with them. Don't you understand their situation? Don't you understand their condition? You're a hum- human being just as they. It's interesting that one of the ways that this little passage can be translated, it's done by a man named D.A. Carson like this. He tells us, he he translates it like this, that we are to be self-effacing and that our self-effacing-ness is to be made known to everyone. Now, the little word efface means to obliterate. 
And when we talk about it in terms of being self-effacing, we're talking about being people who are inconspicuous. That's the sense there. Now the humor of all that is then Paul is saying, allow yourself to be inconspicuously known to everyone. Think about that. That's impossible. You can't be inconspicuous and known at the same time. But we're to be a people so peculiar that it's our inconspicuousness that's known to everybody. What does that mean? It means that in our humility, that we're always pointing people away from ourselves to Christ. That we're not worried about us, we're worried about them. That we're not worried about our own rights, we're worried about theirs. That we're not worried if we get our due, we're worried if they get their due. We're not worried that we have been offended We're not protecting space. We're not protecting turf. We're not protecting ego. We're simply there that God would be glorified and someone else might be blessed. Now, how do you become that kind of person? Well, you become that kind of person by understanding this, that the Lord is near. He's right here. Have you ever been in a class when you were in college in high school but you're in a class and I would say in college let's say you have as I've had over the course of my life brilliant professors and all you want to do is sit in that class and listen to them teach but how many of you know there's always a fool in one of those classes there's a fool in one of those classes who has the audacity to open their mouth in front of this brilliant person and they really sound foolish (laughs) and you want to shut them up because you're not paying for their knowledge you want to hear the other guy You see, when you spend time in the presence of brilliance, it humbles you. And you become reasonable, gentle, not very arrogant. And when we understand that we're in the very presence of God, we have to ask ourselves this question. It's a question that Paul asked the most arrogant, probably, church in the New Testament about which we read, the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He asked them simply this, What do you have that you have not received. You see, they were all proud of who they were. They were all proud of all the accomplishments that were happening in the life of the church. And so Paul had to bring them down a peg or ten and say, what do you have that you haven't really received? That is, hasn't everything you have come from God? So how can you be so proud and so uppity about that? You're being unreasonable. You're not thinking about your life in the proper perspective. You think it's all about you, and it's not. Everything that you have, God has given to you. It's about Him. Point to Him. Think about Him. Don't lord it over someone else. Don't be arrogant over someone else. How can you be harsh when He has been so gentle with you? Because you see, when you think about the gospel and you think about the context of the gospel in your life in the gospel, you realize that the only reason you believe, that the only reason that you're accepted by God, that the only reason you're justified, that the only reason that your name is written in heaven is because of Him, not you. I've said this to you many times because I say it to myself all the time. And that is, when I'm witnessing to someone else, the most apparent thing is that I must tell them is that if it's left up to me, the best I can earn is hell. And you know, that just doesn't impress them. They don't go, that's really good, Bill. 
I'm really impressed with you. I want to be just like you when I grow up. But that's the truth, you see. And once you know that, once we come to grips with that, once we understand that, then it's really difficult for us to lord ourselves, to put ourselves over above every anyone else. Because, you see, we live in the very presence of God. The Lord is near. If Jesus came in here today, I don't think we'd all jump up and try to impress him with our lives. I think we'd bow before him. Because that's the proper posture of us before him. The Lord is near. Not only the Lord is near in that sense, but the Lord is near in another sense, and that is that the Lord is near in the sense of his return. Uh, Paul writes in Romans that the coming of the Lord is more near now than it was when we first believed. And if that was true for him, how much more for us? But you see, knowing that he's going to come then realizes that I don't have to press to make sure that all my rights are honored by everyone, that I get my due. Because when I think about the Lord's return, I understand it's then that with him I'll be glorified. It's then that I'll receive this great inheritance. It's then that he'll vindicate whatever needs to be vindicated on my behalf. That the Lord is near, that he's the judge, not me. It's his vengeance, not mine. Justice delayed is not justice denied by God. He will come. I don't have to press. I don't have to push. I don't have to be harsh. I don't have to lose my temper. I don't have to be angry. I can be reasonable. And so you see, at that point in time, it becomes very reasonable to forgive everyone who has harmed us. Uh, Paul writes that to the church in Colossae, in, in uh, Colossians in chapter Three, I think you heard this as we were singing. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. And here's the kicker. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. How can we withhold forgiveness when we have been forgiven so much? You know the great parable that Jesus tells about the man who owed his master a tremendous amount, an amount he could never repay, and he was forgiven. And then he went to another man who owed him just a little bit in comparison, and he wouldn't forgive him. That's unreasonable. It's unreasonable. Because when you become a reasonable person, you begin to think, how have I been accepted by God? Hasn't he forgiven me all these offenses? Isn't it then unreasonable not to forgive another? Of course. It would be unreasonable to withhold forgiveness when we have been so forgiven. Even when we share our faith with others, as Peter writes in 1 Peter uh, in chapter 3, he writes on how we're to do that. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, uh, he writes, But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. That is, while you're rejoicing in the midst of difficulty, they'll ask you, Are you crazy? Verse 16, Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Why? Because we know them. We know their situation. We know that it's utterly impossible, apart from a work of God, as he did for us, that they'll understand why we're rejoicing in the midst of this difficulty. They'll understand why we have hope in the midst of this. And so we don't need to be harsh. We don't need to be arrogant. We don't have to lord it over them. We can calmly and gently and kindly, empathetically tell them. And we don't have to get angry with them if they disagree with us. 
We don't have to get snooty. We don't have to be arrogant because we know that it's only because of the grace of God given to us that we understand it all. And that's nothing to do with us. It's everything to do with Him. And then that gives us confidence again to be gentle to them because we simply place them in the hands of this one who, uh, about whom it is said that a bruised reed he will not break. And we pray for them. We say, oh God, please touch them at this great point of vulnerability and strengthen them. Please don't break them. Please. So we do it with gentleness and respect. Or we get into conversations with people that disagree about us. I I get into conversations, it seems, on a university campus from time to time, often about human sexuality. And there's all kinds of discussions about that. And whether we're prudes or whether we're hate mongers or however that comes about, whether we're dealing with heterosexual sin or homosexual sin. And yet we don't need to fight about these things. We just merely need to lay out the truth. And that is that it's God who defines sexuality for us and sexual intimacy for us, not us. I was not the one who came out and said that, that a man and woman should share uh, monogamous sexual intimacy in the context of marriage together. It left on my own. I'm not sure I would have thought of that. And human desires and sinful human desires being what they are, I'm not certain at all that I would have desired that. But that's God's way. So a man should leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, the two should become one flesh. That defines it. That's, that defines it for all of us. And you know, when it's defined like that, whether it be an actual fact or whether it be in our, mind, in our own minds and hearts, we're all sexual sinners. It isn't that we have to put one down to raise up another. It's simply the truth. Whether it's in the realm of heterosexuality or homosexuality, whichever, really doesn't matter. The point is there's only one way to express sexuality, and that is the way God designed because he's the pure one and he's the standard because he's righteous. So we don't have to fight, we don't have to hate them, nor even argue, lay the truth out before them. And if they disagree, no big surprise. I don't have to defend my turf, because I don't have any turf. (laughs) It's all God's, because it's not about me. It's about Him. And it's about them coming to know Him. So it's reasonable, you see. It's reasonable to turn down a lot of money for something that would cause you to be immoral and unethical in the course of business. It's reasonable to persevere in the context of a difficult marriage for the sake of Christ. It's reasonable to love your enemies. You remember that great passage in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus, I have two minutes, that Jesus, uh, at first hearing, sounds very, very unreasonable. In Matthew chapter 5, he begins it like this. He said, you heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That sounds very reasonable. Until I begin to think, is that the way God has treated me? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Oh, then I read on. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, that is to say, probably insults you, turn the other to him also. Uh, That's reasonable for someone who understands that God has been like that to him. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. That sounds unreasonable until I begin to think about the grace of God given me. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, uh, go with him two miles, that sounds really ridiculous until I think of how God has 
been patient with me and persevered with me and gone with me. Give to the one who begs from you and don't refuse the, uh, the one who would borrow from you. I'm thinking, but, but, but don't you know the complications of borrowing? And I said, oh, it strikes you bad, doesn't it? Until you begin to think about how kind and generous God has been to us. You've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Hating your enemy makes a lot of sense until I realize that I was an enemy of God and in Christ Jesus he loved me. And then it becomes more reasonable to love my enemies and bless them as God has blessed me. Let me end with this. James in chapter 5. In verse 7, how we're to live. He writes, be patient, reasonable, gentle. Therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, he's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Be gentle. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray for me and for us that our whole life would be informed by the gospel. And therefore, it would soften us, cause us to be gentle, reasonable. We would continue to rejoice in how you have worked in us. And then we would work like that in our relationships with others. Please help us. May this self-effacing forbearance, gentleness, graciousness, patience, reasonableness be the mark that is upon our lives for the sake of the gospel. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you very much about our time this evening. Please, please, please come. And I remind you that uh, the response to the benediction is from our text. It's, the Lord is near. And if that fills you with joy, then your proper response as well is simply this, hallelujah. The Lord is near. Hallelujah. Please receive this then as God's benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, the Lord is near. Hallelujah.